0: Let's open our Bibles this morning. It's a good time to open God's Word and look at Scripture. There's a lot of uh, news that a lot of people are looking at. We need to look uh, also, maybe first and foremost, at Scripture news. This is our good news from God's Word, and hopefully, it brings us some clarity in our hearts and minds. Uh, a lot of my friends are preaching uh, about the COVID-19 a virus, the sovereignty of God, and I'm um, talking about God being in control. It's a good word, and I think it could be a good opportunity to do something like that. However, I'm not as cool as they are, and uh, I'm just kind of a, you know, a, a one-horse one Charlie, I guess, and I'll bring us right to hebrews 12 but i believe in the sovereignty of god over the exposition of god's word and wherever god has us opening the scripture in the flow of uh, our study could be the most timely word we need in light of world circumstances um, public emergencies national circumstances trust in god and Quite frankly, pastorally, Hebrews 12 is a good word for all of our hearts because this is speaking directly to God's fatherly discipline and care uh, of His children whom He loves. And so, one major theme and takeaway just up front is that the reason God disciplines us for holiness, the reason He cares for us as His children is because we are his children. He's treating us just like the ultimate parent should be treating his own earthly child with great care and great love and great attention. So everything that's happening in your life, in the macro and in the micro is all in light of God's loving fatherly care to you and to me as his child and as his children. He's the ultimate parent. Uh, Christians experience the ultimate parent-to-child relationship. And as a parent, my chief concern for my children, as should be for all of us who have the privilege of parenting, is that our children would be right with God. We want children to be reconciled with the Lord, right? That's our heart as a father. There's no greater joy than to see our children Children, our little ones, whom God has entrusted to us walking in the truth. That's what we want. We want their holiness, but we want their holiness because we want them to want Christ and know Christ and be assured of heaven and going there. Third John one four. That was John the Apostles. The aged apostle, that was when he was writing it at the end of his ministry, that was his heart for the churches in Asia Minor. No greater joy than to see his spiritual children walking in the truth. This is God's heart. This, this parental concern is sourced in God's heart for us. We want our children to grow. He wants us to grow. And growth in Hebrews 12, as we're going to look at, a portion of this chapter this morning is synonymous with holiness. That's an important sort of theological thing to square this morning. as you approach this chapter when we're talking about growth and we're, we're talking about walking in truth and walking in righteousness. It's holiness to heaven. And I want to just sort of give a banner idea to frame your thinking this morning. Holiness is not an end in and of itself. Holiness, your holiness is not an end in and of itself. The book of Leviticus says clearly, be holy as our heavenly father is holy. Be holy as God is holy. That is repeated in Matthew chapter five, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First Peter also says, be holy as God is holy. That's true. And God wants us to be looking to Christ likeness in our holiness, but holiness is not an end in in and of itself and what do i mean by that well there's a lot of cults that will say you need to be perfect you need to be right you need to be just just right to stay inside our box that's perfectionism and there is second blessing charismatic theology that goes over the top that says you know if you don't have this stage of holiness in your life then you're not right with god I mean, those are, those are errant ways to view holiness. Holiness is something that we should love because we love Christ who is holy. We want to be holy because we want Christ. We want to be holy in light of our relationship with Christ. We want to be holy because it assures our hearts that we're going to heaven where it is ultimately holy. If we have no affection for holiness and no desire for holiness, what makes us think that we are going to heaven where Christ is there and Christ is holy? So we should long for holiness and we should long for obedience and long for righteousness, but in light of our relationship with Christ who is holy. We're holy because we're going home to a place that is holy. Heaven is the end and heaven is the end because Christ is the end. He is the goal. So our holiness is a goal but it's set within a goal of knowing and being with Christ. Where do I find this? Look at verse 14 of chapter 12. It says, "Strive for peace with everyone, with everyone and for the holiness." What is the holiness? It's again righteousness without which no one will see the Lord. We want Holiness because we want the Lord Jesus said as much in his Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 8 blessed are the pure in heart why is purity of heart a blessing why is holiness a blessing for they shall see God. God is the ultimate end of the gospel, right? The good news of the gospel is we get God and God has us. We know Christ and Christ knows us. And so as we're being holy, as God is holy, it's in the context of knowing Christ and longing for Christ and journeying and marathoning for Christ all the way to the finish line into heaven where it's ultimately holy. Hebrews 12 teaches us that God's concern is for us to marathon through to the end so that we will share in his holiness. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. It says, for they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, this is God the Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness we're participating in God who is holy we're participating in our relationship with him look at verse 4 holiness is a major theme and God's sovereignty over it verse 4 speaks of struggling against sin verse 10 speaks of sharing in holiness verse 11 speaks of the peaceful peaceful fruit of righteousness strive for holiness verse 14 verse 16 no one, look at verse 16. It says, no one is sexually immoral or unholy. This is a very strong concern for God. We're called to not be unholy, but to be holy, but not holy in a self, self-absorbed self sort of way where you can say, well, I'm holy and I'm more holy than you are. I'm holier than thou, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I used to be kind of a, holiness guy when i went to christian college and i was known for being rigidly legalistic and and had kind of that reputation in the dorm hallway and and then there was this guy next door and and they were talking about that because i was a stickler and a rule keeper and they were listening to some secular music and some things that was against the code of where i went to school and and it was over the top right and so they joked to me and they said you know um one guy in the room they said you're holier than now but but really you know we call we we call this new standard there's a new standard than holier than now it's holier than jeff <laughs> and so that became the thing but i'm not saying we shouldn't obey the word of god i'm all for obedience and i'm all for the, the call for holiness, which is to be set apart from our sin. But we need to remember the motivation behind being set apart for our sin and being righteous is Christ. And it's in the context of his loving relationship as a father to call us to himself within the pursuit of holiness, the holiness as it's a pursuit of him. Okay, so practically speaking, I want to unpack unpack verses one through nine this morning under two main ideas in light of this journey for holiness this journey for God this journey towards heaven we will be in our lifetime always doing two things number one we're always going to be fighting a particular sin I know that's really good news right You're always, and the the sooner you accept these things, the better, right? You are always going to be fighting a particular sin. Tell me it's not true. And then secondly, you're always going to be enduring a particularly hard circumstance. You're always fighting a sin and you're always going to be battling a particularly hard trial. This is what God dials up for us, for our holiness sake, for our relationship with him. It's true. It's true. I think the sooner we accept these realities, the the greater contentment we can have flood into our hearts. By the way, the whole prosperity false gospel is flying in the face of this reality. It's like trying to hypnotize great crowds to say, that's not really true. You're not really fighting a particular sin. You're not supposed to be fighting a or enduring or surviving a particularly difficult circumstance, right? I mean, that's why people buy into that. But the reality is Hebrews 12 flies in the face of that false teaching. God as your father is always, always, always working in our lives, disciplining us along so that we can be holy, so that we can know him so that we can participate in holiness with him. All right, number one, verses three and four, you will always be fighting a particular sin. Look at verse three. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against, and in the original, in your struggle against the sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now the word picture here is the marathon race. Hebrews twelve, one and two. It's the race that is set before us. It's the same race that is set was set before Christ. He endured, and so we endure. He marathon to the cross. We marathon in the Christian life. All of the heroes of the faith from Hebrews eleven, right? Remember them? Think back, the different names: Moses, Abraham, Rahab. Noah, all of these people, they were marathoners before us. Here in verse 3, the concern is that we not give up, that we not become faint hearted. Literally, the language there is faint of soul in the race. We're to keep keeping on and not fall away. And the study of Hebrews, which has gone on for a long time now, we're kind of coming to the the final end of this journey through Hebrews. But in the study, especially earlier on, there was a lot of talk about the warnings against drifting away, right? Do you remember that? Don't fall away. Don't give up. Don't quit. That's not losing your salvation. It's just the idea that in the Christian life, we might be tempted to go away. And then some people who think they are Christians will fall away into false teaching, false religion, or into unrepentant, hard-hearted sin and find out they were never Christians in the first place, hopefully in this life before it's too late. And so the warning is, don't be someone who casually drifts away. And that's the warning again here it's don't grow weary, don't grow faint-hearted, keep going. Hebrews 2, lest we drift away, Hebrews 2, 1. Hebrews 5, 11, becoming dull of hearing. Hebrews 6, 6, those who have crucified again the Son of God, those who are trampling the gospel underfoot, they have, verse 6, fallen away to the point of no return. Instead of that, consider Christ Consider Christ as our motivation. Consider the verse one cloud of witnesses in their race. Christ is there to stoke the fire in our hearts from becoming faint hearted. Aristotle, he used these same words, faint hearted and falling or weary of soul, for an athlete who flings himself across the finish line at the end of the race. Uh, don't grow weary before the finish line is the idea you're running, you're marathoning and you're going to go to heaven and just throw yourself ultimately into the arms of Jesus and say, I didn't quit. I kept going. I persevered all the way to the end. Even if I collapse in heaven, we're called to think deeply about Christ, Christ who never sinned. He's impeccable. He, he could never sin, but look at this. It says he endured from sinners, such hostility. Now, again, again, we as Christians, we're like Christ, but we're not like Christ. Christ was fully human, is fully human, fully God. Uh, because he's fully God, he would he would not have sinned. He, in one sense, could not have sinned, but fully human, he would not have sinned because he's also fully God. It's amazing. That means temptations really never arose from within Christ's heart like they do ours because we are contaminated by sin's curse. We have sin in our hearts. We have temptations that rise up from within. Christ's temptations came from without, from, from the outside, right? They were pressures like Satan's temptations, turn stones to bread, bow down and worship me. fling yourself off the top of the temple. I mean, test God, do these things. And, and Jesus used the word of God to deflect and block and parry, you know, Satan in the fight. And he did that well. You say, well, then his temptations weren't as difficult as ours because they weren't rising from the inside. Well, I like to look at it this way and C.S. Lewis helped frame this up. I found the quote on Google and it's the idea that as the pressure comes on Christ in his temptations while he was on earth, those pressures are ones that he never gave into and so he endured those pressures at levels that we would never be able to endure. We would have given up far, far earlier and sooner than Christ did. Here's a quote from Lewis. It says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life, always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows what full temptation means. The only complete realist. So, again... We are supposed to encounter Christ in our minds, thinking about what Christ endured on the cross. He endured the ultimate temptation and survived it and survived it. He persevered through it. That's how we struggle. When you struggle, when you're sitting there going, I have a besetting sin. This is the sin in my life. And, and, you know, nobody's probably going to stand up and I'm not asking you to, please don't. nobody's going to stand up and say, no, this is my sin. I mean, you might want to do that, but for most of us, deep down, you're going, I have this plague in my life. It's like, I mean, I'm not trying to make light of the COVID-19, but it's, it's like having a virus. I have something that's there that I want it to go away, and it's, it's harming me. Right. This is the besetting sin that you're wrestling with, that you are giving to God, that you're asking the Lord for forgiveness over. This is where you're researching the Bible to bring the Bible to bear on that issue. Perhaps you have a accountability partner or a trusted friend and you talk about this sin in your life. This is what we're talking about. These are the. This is the sin, verse 1 of chapter 12, that clings so closely. It's like vines around our ankles that holds us back from running. And this is the sin that tangles us up, that makes you want to quit the race, frankly. Makes you want to give up. Say, I'm throwing it in. It was a good run for 20 years as a believer, and now I'm going to chuck it. Right? That's... That's how this works. Some people say that the sin that he's talking about here that we're struggling against is actually leaving the faith. But I think it is no, the particular sin in your life that tempts you to walk away from the faith, to walk away from church, to walk away from Christian friendships and relationships. Am I speaking to you now? I mean, we, we want holiness, but we have a hidden sin that contradicts this desire for holiness. We want Christian fellowship and relationships, but we have this particular sin that's like a stake in the ground in our heart that's tethering us from the joy of Christian fellowship. You got to repent of that stuff. You got to give it up. And how do we give it up? By considering Christ, by considering his endurance, not as a guilt thing, but as a, as a remembrance of the ultimate runner. The ultimate runner is Christ. I was with uh, a pastor in Southern California last weekend. It was a great guy. He's an energized guy. He's makes me pale in comparison to his energy. Um, he allowed me to preach in his pulpit last week and it was great. I enjoyed it. But what impacted me most about most about him is he said he wakes up every morning and prays a simple prayer. The simple prayer is God. Give me a passion for Jesus Christ. Give me a passion for Jesus Christ. When, when we go to sleep at night, we go to sleep for, for some of us, we go to sleep praying prayers, right? I say, Lord, you know, help me. Or we go to sleep worrying about things that we should be praying about, or we don't sleep at all. But when we wake up, that sin is waiting right at the bedside, right? For us, it's that particular sin. It's waiting. there, looking at us like, okay, well, what are you going to do with this? But you know who else is waiting for you when you wake up? Jesus Christ. Consider Christ. Repent of the sin. Consider him. This is how we deal with temptation. Resisting to the point of shedding of blood. Verse four, basically the author is saying, look, you're still alive. You're still in this race. You've not died yet. You've not died like Stephen. You've not died like James who was the uh, one of the three who was killed early in um, the, the church. You've not had the shedding of blood. We're called to lay our life down. We're called to have faith in death. Um, Stephen, when he died, he was given a vision of the son of God, the son of man standing at the right hand of God, Acts 7, 56. He cried out with a loud voice. He said, don't hold this sin against them as he was being stoned. And it said he fell asleep. I've heard it said of people who die for the faith that it, you know, it probably is likened to falling asleep because they're dying without fear. It's worse things I've heard than death. And I would say flinching in your faith would be one of those, dying as a coward. But you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood like Christ did, so keep running. Keep running. Don't be mortified. Don't be... Um, Weary in the mortification of your sin. Paul grew to breaking points. Romans 7 Oh wretched man that I am, remember? Exasperated. Who will deliver me from this what? Body of death? Who will How will I ever get this done? And then ultimately he looks to heaven. Thanks be to God, <laughs> who in Christ Jesus will receive me. There is therefore now no condemnation. So he's clinging to truth as he fights through this. So there's compassion with this fight, but it's important to keep fighting. Point two, point one, you'll always be, for, be fighting a particular sin. I'm not saying it's the same sin throughout your whole life, but you will always be in that fight. So accept that. And point two, you'll always be surviving a particular circumstance, a particular circumstance, or a particularly hard circumstance. Once you accept that, let me just tell you this. It's so freeing. It's so freeing. Okay, there's the sin. I got it. Okay, this is the hard circumstance. I'm in the fight. I'm in the fight. If you live in a way where you wish that you did not have hardship in your life or you feel ripped off because other people don't have hardship in their life and you have hardship in your life, you're a depressed individual. When you say no, life is hard. And when we come to the place scripturally where we say, wait a minute, God, our father who loves you and loves me is redeeming this hardship in my life. That's when you can have some joy in it. God's using the hardship in my life to grow me and make me holy. Look at verse five. Now we're pivoting into a different metaphor, different word picture. We're moving from the marathon to the family father-son relationship. That's what's happening here. There's still some race metaphor, but really it's father-son now. Verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives Let's stop there fatherly discipline by a sovereign god to make us holy I'm going to make our principal point again holiness is not an end in and of itself we're not working towards pharisaical perfectionism in this life that's not the goal holiness is a heart change where we are growing in our Christ likeness in a decreasing way from sin in an increasing way towards being like Jesus Christ from one level of glory to the next 2 Corinthians 3:18 Romans 8:28 God is working all things together for the good the good here is our holiness our Christ likeness for those who are who love him and are called according to his purpose This is something God is working in in our lives. He who began a good work in you will what? Be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But holiness is to be viewed as our being on a journey towards heaven. And holiness is our good as we know God even better through being holy. Holiness is the thrice attribute of God. Isaiah 6. He's thrice holy. Holy. We're refined as we march towards heaven into this holiness. How do you know, here's the question of the text though. How do you know when God's discipline in our lives is a trial or is a correction This is the question of being a a child, by the way, with a parent. How do I know what my parent just said I have to do or not do is either a hardship or is it a punishment? Isn't that the question? How do I know what just airdropped into my life? I wasn't expecting it. Whoops, I woke up with this and now life just got really hard. My adrenaline is spiking because I have new work or a new situation or a new crisis in my life that I did not expect. How do I know Lord, whether that is something that is just deserts for what I have been failing in, or is it a trial that God is just providentially allowing in my life that I'm supposed to bear up under and endure through. And is it relevant to even ask that question? Is that a helpful question to ask? I'm seeing some head shaking, but I'm just saying, listen, I know we ask it. Did I do something that is now delivering for me a very, very hard life or am I just enduring something that God has allowed to be brought into my life that is to make me more like him? Is it punitive or is it a training exercise, right? The word discipline here, paideia, by the way, encompasses both. And any good coach is doing both all the time for his athlete. Oh, you just mouthed off at me. Take a lap. Take another lap. Drop and do 20. We do that with our boys sometimes. It's awesome. Do some push-ups right now, you know? And, it's, and they know That what they just did is a cause and effect. But there are other times that you need discipline for discipline's sake. We're being trained. We discipline ourselves of the purpose of godliness. God disciplines us to make us stronger. He's training us. He's correcting us. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the what? Paideia, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline here is the training and instruction. You're correcting things, but it's not always cause and effect corrections. Hey, do it this way. Don't do it that way. It's guidance in our lives. And so hardship is not necessarily um, retributive. It's not something that is always a cause and effect retribution. So how will you know which is which? when God has ordered a trial for your life, how do you know if you're Job or if you're David, right? I mean, David ultimately was confronted by Nathan. And I'll say this, as believers... We always are called to be examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We're examining ourselves with scripture. We're to bring the scriptural searchlight to bear on our own heart and our own life patterns. And there are times where we are acutely struck by the Holy Spirit through the word of God to show us, hey, I need to correct this in my life. That should be part and parcel for why you're under the preaching of the word this morning. To say, Lord, what is it that you need to correct and work in my life? And according to the word of God, just as clear as it was through the voice of Nathan to David, we should correct things. And so we may correct them. That doesn't necessarily mean the hardship's going to lift, though, right? For Job, the beauty of the story of Job is that all that was stripped from him, all his wealth, through natural disasters, right? All of his children struck dead instantly. His body stricken with sores. His wife estranged from him. All of that hardship was something that he didn't understand why it had come upon him. His counselors believed that they understood. They were quiet for seven days, and that was good, but then they started to talk, and they started to basically accuse him based on their understanding of God's word why Job had been sinful and brought this upon himself. And ultimately, what he needed to do to get out from the pressure, right? Do you remember that? Just repent. Own it, see it, you won't see it. And so the pressure is still on you. The trial is still on you, accept this. And that was, the, the point of Job is that that was not the point that Job needed to understand. Job was never in this, in his lifetime, I don't know what he understands now in heaven. I'm sure he understands God's word about what happened to him. But in, the, in his lifetime, the whole point was that he didn't know what was going on in heaven where God and Satan were talking and God was demonstrating that nothing, no amount of pressure would destroy Job's saving faith. He would ultimately persevere because his faith was unshakable. Why? Because God had put that faith in Job's heart. He was showing the unbreakable nature of faith. It's amazing. But Job never knew it. And Job ultimately refuted The worst attacks, which was the cynicism from his friends. People label sins of culture, natural catastrophes as cause and effect things. You remember that hurricanes and storms and things that happen. You'll hear great public leaders pontificate and and wax eloquently about the sins of our culture, the way our cultures digressed. And that's why this has happened or that. And people have to take those statements back, right? You, You hear that all the time. People blame things all the time. They, people blame the terrorist attack of 9-11 on the sin of our, our nation. I mean, those kinds of statements are not helpful because we don't know all the whys and wherefores of what God is doing in our world. We don't. But it is important for us to accept what we do know from Scripture God is doing in our lives. He's making us holy through hardship. He is. Whether it's a cause and effect from our sin or not, or a trial pressure that's put on your life, he wants you to be holy. Not holy as an end in and of itself. He wants you to be holy to know him. Do you see that? It's important to understand that. Why do I say that? Look at, look at the quotations from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? In other words, when it gets really difficult, remember your sonship, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is the idea that there could be a clear temptation to give up, like I mentioned before, but also a clear temptation to look at a trial and live in denial of it. This isn't a big deal almost like you're going this is not happening to me you know la 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 I don't care I'm going to disregard it I'm going to live in denial I'm going to compartmentalize away I'm not going to take seriously that God is using something in my life or I'm going to blame it on somebody else I'm going to spiral into self-pity all of these things are temptations that can happen when pressure is on what God's word said is don't regard lightly this discipline don't be the child who's being disciplined by a parent. You did wrong. You shouldn't have gone there. This and this. Don't disregard that as a child. Don't harden, the, harden yourself to that. Or a parent who's saying, do it this way. I'm guiding you this way. Don't disregard your father's wisdom. Don't blow it off. That's what he's saying. Embrace it. See it for what it is. For, why? Because The Lord disciplines, there's paideia again. He disciplines the ones he loves. Why does he bring hardship into your life? He loves you. God loves you. Say, this is hard. I have a choice to make. I'll either get angry or say, you know what? No, God loves me. And he wants me to go through it. I remember being in ministry years and years and years ago before here. (laughs) Don't worry. It's kind of an interesting story. But ministry was so hard at one point in my life early on that I wanted to leave where I was ministering. It was not a good ministry post or it didn't seem like it was for me. And I had a very wise friend sit down with me who was from outside of the church. He came and visited and he said, you know what? God will use the anvil of whatever circumstance you're in to bang out what he wants banged out in your life, whether you're here or at another church. You go to the other church, he's going to bang out your issues at that church, just like he would bang out your issues at this church. Never forgot that. I went, wow, that was really good. I even sounded good as I said it again. No, but it's true. It's amazing. I I mentioned this from the pulpit not too long ago, reflecting on that same experience. I had uh, sat with a guy named Conrad Mbewe, who's a pastor in Lusaka, Africa, which is in, it's the capital of Zambia. And it's Conrad Mbewe. And I was talking to him because he had visited us at the church I was at before as a guest preacher. He and his wife, his wife for the first time. And we um, had steak together and she had never had steak at a steak restaurant and it was kind of an occasion. So we're just talking and sharing our hearts. And I was sharing that story and that we had decided, you know, not to leave because it got really difficult and that the wife of Conrad's wife looked at my wife and said, man, I'm so glad that you decided to stay so that God would not have to teach you that same lesson somewhere else where you would be at your next ministry. Isn't that amazing. God wants to teach you what he wants to teach you right where you are right Now, right now, it's what he's doing. Why do we believe that? Well, we, we believe that because we're embracing the fact that we are sons. We're children of God. We're his. Verse five, we are sons. We are loved. Verse six, he chastises, which literally means whips or scourges. This is the same word used of Christ being whipped. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's loving discipline. It's loving discipline. Ever seen a child who has not been disciplined? You've seen um, something that is pretty disruptive and pretty tornadic and pretty crazy. And you don't let the child out of his or her own sin that's manifesting out of the heart and behavior, but we always kind of look to the parent and wonder what is going on at home that a parent is just blind to their child's sin. What's going on is the sin of passivity. Parents who are passive. Yield this kind of result if you're hands off, if you're checked out, if you don't care, your child's gonna come uncorked and unglued and do damage and bring ruin and shame, as the Bible says, right, to a parent's reputation. And it's hardship, it's difficult to do that. I know as a parent, it's difficult to when you're focused and you're at the kitchen table and you're doing something and you hear something in the other room, it's like. You know, suddenly you just hear the chair backing up, you know, and you're just like, okay, you know, I'm on. And, and at that point, you have to do it lovingly, receptively, affirmingly, humbly. You can't do it out of a reaction, out of anger, unless you want to harden your child's heart up even more. You have to do it, but you have to do it lovingly. With this example, soft-hearted parenting, it brings meaningful, thoughtful age-appropriate responses and transformation. Abuse is never the way. So no matter how much your child thinks that the discipline is unfair, unjust, harmful, no matter how much the child is trying to pad his or her britches with books or magazines, the child knows deep down that discipline is best. And as a Christian, as a son, as a daughter of our Heavenly Father, the pressure that's coming down on our lives is best. We need it. We have to grow. The worst thing that could happen is for God to leave us to ourselves, right? For Him to just back away. Proverbs 22 Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart. From it, It's the same principle for our Christian lives. We're being trained and it keeps us going. Holiness is not an end in and of itself. Endurance is the end, enduring to the end, enduring all the way to the finish line to Christ. We have him now. He's helping us now and we will have him ultimately as we are glorified in consummation. Verse seven, it is for discipline. You could say it is because discipline that you have to endure. The discipline is what makes us have to endure. It keeps us tracking. It does. Endurance is the word hupomone. We've talked about it a lot. It's the idea of bearing up under the trial. It is for this posture where we are bearing up under the trial by faith that we keep going. God puts, and you've probably seen this, he puts more and more complicated pressure on our lives to keep refining us so that we know that we have not yet arrived. Who thinks they've arrived? Don't raise your hand because something's around the corner to help us know that we've not yet arrived. I don't mean fatalism or morbidity. I just mean God loves us enough to keep challenging us to stay in a posture of humility. Hardening your heart is not an option. We don't regard it lightly. Blow it off. Forget about it, God. This can't be fair. This is not right. Or in legalistic Phariseeism, what did I do? What did I do that brought this upon me? How do I fix it? No, you bear up under it. It is for this kind of endurance that God builds in us. That's what gets us toward God's ends. Which is holiness in the context of a relationship with Christ. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We should just assume it. God loves us. This is the ideal, ultimately, pa- ultimate parent-child relationship. This is not a, an interrupted home. This is not a problematic relationship. This is not something that is septic. This is not a toxic relationship. This is the perfect heavenly father who's perfectly loving us individually and personally, refining us with what he dials up for our lives in particular. That's how he shows that we are legitimate children of God. Look at verse eight. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, everybody, all Hebrews 11, all the heroes, Christ, even as an example of enduring pressure. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is what we don't want That early church father Jerome said, listen, the greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us. We want God's loving, righteous indignation to fall upon us so that we will be convicted by our sins. Well, I'm kind of gonna bring us to a speedy close. We have a baptism. But let's look at verse nine. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? We respect our earthly fathers, so use that as a bridge to respect your heavenly father. And what does respect look like? It looks like submission, subjugation. Subjugation. It's Job who had everything taken and said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He put himself basically in the fetal position before his heavenly father. That's where God wants us. Where, Where do we have relief? How can we be offered instantaneous relief in the midst of the circumstance? Submission. Yielding. I'm not saying be inappropriately vulnerable to the world we have to be wise to be careful to be vigilant there's a devil there's the flesh there's the world I'm not saying we just throw off thinking but at the same time with our heavenly father as we are wise down here we are wisely submitting ourselves to his care saying God take care of me God, help me through whatever you're working in my life and allowing to happen in my life right now. Help me, help me, God. Let me rank, Hupatasa, rank myself under your command, God. The father of spirits, spirits, not angels here. Father of spirits means eternal beings. I'm eternally your son. I'm eternally your daughter. I'm your child. I submit to you. And eternally, I know I'm gonna live because I'm on the path, I'm on the narrow road, and I'm submissive. I'm saying it makes all of the circumstance feel great. I'm just saying there's relief. Kick against the goads, as one translation of what Paul was doing. Saul, he was kicking against the goads until he repented and believed at Damascus Road. We are in in a national state of emergency, for whatever purpose, this is the news, this is the dynamic, this is the culture we're in right now. We always talk about how the church will fall under persecution, who knows, right? Look how quickly things shifted, at least in the immediate I was listening to myself on the radio. I don't regularly listen to the radio broadcast and it was a repeat from years and years ago and I was talking about something that was very culturally sensitive and I'm like, what is gonna come out of my mouth next? This is a dangerous culture we live in. We don't wanna lead by the chin, but at the same time, we do wanna be comforted by the knowledge that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over your church. He's sovereign over your health. He's sovereign over your days he's sovereign over everything sovereign over your children sovereign and he's loving and he cares about you and he loves you and he's your god and he's your father so we can submit to him lovingly knowing he loves us why do we love him because he first loved us he loved you first